Okay, so we're getting ready to get into some of all this these brilliant ideas and things that you're sharing, and all the solutions to all the issues out here. And one of the first one I want to touch on is just the whole school choice issue. And uh, I was reading somewhere about the widespread support, and it only makes sense. And and I and I, I want our audience to know is that I'm a proponent of school choice. Uh, and uh, we'll get into uh, our current public school system. I don't understand why we keep expecting for them these people to solve the achievement gap. They they just don't have what it takes. I don't care how many degrees they have, how many years of experience. Uh, when you got a governor who I call edu uh, educator in chief, he's actually hiring the head of the union to be over the Minnesota Department of Education. And anyone who really understands what's going on in our public schools know that the union, the teachers union, they're a big part of the, part of the problem. But And I'm up front about that, keeping it 100. But tell us about uh, your work in school choice and what the polls show out there and those type of things. Yeah, we really see not only in Minnesota, but statewide or nationwide, too, that school choice is on the rise. It's popular. Parents are considering alternative learning environments for a variety of reasons, whether it's the fact that uh, COVID closed down their school and schools, public schools remained closed and distance learning just didn't work out well for their student. whether it's curriculum concerns, they're seeing what their students are or aren't learning in class. So families are really exploring other learning environments for a variety of reasons. And we have focused on school choice at American Experiment for the past 30 years and what we call real school choice, which should mm -hmm. include private and religious schools. And so we're really seeing popularity for school choice on the rise. There are polls that confirm that. And we're realizing that families are desperate for these options, but can't always access them, right? There are sometimes barriers in place that prevent them from leaving their neighborhood school district, whether that's a financial barrier, transportation issues, that sort of thing. And so this past legislative session, there was a provision in the Senate education bill called education savings accounts that would have allowed families to access a different learning environment than their public school and use the dollars that they pay as taxpayers to cut the cost or help with the cost of that. And we had, uh, there were a lot of great efforts to promote that and uh, there were great organizations that rallied behind it. I think of the Exodus MN and there were press conferences that were held and a lot of attention was drawn to the fact that parents want this. This whole provision was parent led. And unfortunately, we found out last night that it did not make it into the final version of the education omnibus bill. However, it has started the conversation and we will continue to put pressure on state leaders to expand educational opportunity in Minnesota because as you mentioned, test scores and our achievement gap just show that not every student thrives in the same learning environment and they shouldn't be limited to a one size fits all model. Well, a couple of things you mentioned there. First is the COVID. And, you know, I, I get around the community quite a bit and I heard a lot of complaints about the public school system just not meeting their needs and requirements. And on a personal level, I saw what some of the policies the impact, it was negative impact, it was having on my grandson. And that's what really got me even more interested in it. But you also mentioned Exodus, Minnesota. And, you know, I, I'm just curious about things most of the time. And I did a little 
peep work on Exodus, Minnesota. And what uh, caught my attention is that uh, there's a lot of black moms out there uh, involved in Exodus, Minnesota, Exodus, Minnesota. I don't know whether they found it or what, but if you really know what's going on, and anyone who really knows what's going on, it would not surprise you that there are black mothers out there that are saying we got to do better and we're looking for different choices and what we're being offered now. So tell us a little bit more about Exodus, Minnesota, uh, its history and uh, its makeup. Because like I say, I saw I just saw a lot of black mothers out there uh, uh, in Exodus, Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from my understanding, it's it's a fairly recent organization that was started by uh, five black moms who are committed to educational excellence for all students, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what school setting that's in. And they all have children. Many of them have children in the Minneapolis and St. Paul public school system. And through COVID and even before that, they realized that their students' needs weren't being met and that their student needed to access a different learning environment. And so they've been really pushing for school choice as a, as a nonpartisan issue. They, I love that they have signs that we've used at school choice rallies saying, you know, united for choice, choice means hope, uh, parents should be empowered to make the decision for their child that is best. And so they have really come together and, and been the face of this push for expanding educational opportunity and of course are supported by hundreds of other parents from a variety of backgrounds and communities, other organizations, American Experiment like ours has been proud to partner with them. And it's unfortunate that state leadership has refused to acknowledge their voices and even have a meeting with them about what they're asking for because they're really pleading and begging state leadership and no parent should have to beg for their child to be able to get an excellent education and and that's where they're at right now and so it's uh it's really important and urgent that state leadership considers what these parents are asking because children cannot wait and they have been waiting for too long and the longer we wait the more the students who fall through the cracks and these parents uh, want better for their children and other children as well. So Katrin, would it be safe to assume that part of the state leadership, quote unquote, that refused to meet with these moms uh, were, was indeed our educator in chief, Governor Walsh. Uh, am I safe to assume that? Well, and it does not surprise any of us that uh, a person like Governor Waltz, who appoints the president of the teachers union as head of the MDE, would not want to meet with anyone who want a better choices in education uh, to compete with them. And, and, you know, look, I hear a lot of excuses why people aren't for choice. But what I say to, especially people in the education, what I say to them, well, look, let's give people choice and prove to us that you can do better than them. You know, what are you afraid of? If, if what you're saying is true, at the end of a few years, we will say, oh, well, no doubt you're right. Uh, the public school system is the best place. And we do need to keep this monopoly, this this unperforming monopoly uh, uh, in education with our children. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that uh, he would not meet with you at all. And uh, the other thing is that I tell people, look, 
we've heard all these excuses. We need more money. We need smaller class size. And I'm going to try to keep this at PG-13 level at least. And we all know it's a bunch of popcock. I mean, it's just a bunch of, come on, give me a break. And I'm telling our audience out there right now, you can give these people a billion dollars. And there's certain parties, uh, certain of our children that they would not educate because they just do not understand what it takes to educate these children. And their whole type of, ooh, their whole type of liberal philosophy on education and the way they look at our community and our children, uh, that's part. That's the biggest hurdle, I think. So anyway, I'm not gonna get too much in, in on my soapbox uh, with the education. Uh, let's talk about the achievement gap. Uh, do you have any numbers that? kind of uh, quantify the achievement gap because my background is engineering and I always start off with numbers and data and apply some logic to it to come to some conclusions as far as how we address these issues. But give us some type of uh, numbers that quantify this achievement gap, uh, Catherine. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I would be remiss to not say that a lot of the, the all of the numbers that I'm mentioning are uh, through publicly available data, and they can you can viewers can learn more about it through my education report, Allergic to Accountability, which is available at AmericanExperiment.org. But it's important to note when we're talking about Minnesota's achievement gap, it's not just the achievement gap between white and black students or white and other students of color. That obviously is there, but there's also a gap based on on income. So a gap between mm -hmm students from low-income backgrounds, and then their, their wealthier peers. So if we look at uh, the test results from our 2019 statewide tests, which are the uh, Minnesota Comprehensive Assessments, the MCAs, we see in fourth grade reading a 35 percentage point achievement gap in proficiency between white and black students. And these achievement gaps are also just as wide and concerning on national tests. So when we look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress or the NAEP reading test, the scores of black and white fourth graders had an achievement gap of 26 percentage points. And we see that both with reading and both with math. And we've also seen in Minnesota that over the last five years, the math achievement gap on our state test scores has widened by two percentage points in grade four and nearly two percentage points in grade eight. And then this gap though, what's also concerning is it's paired with declining test scores for both white and black students in Minnesota. So again, student performance is stagnant, it's in decline, our gap isn't budging. And I should also note that in my report, I talk about gap closures going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So if we look at third grade reading proficiency, we see that maybe the gap between white and black students in 2015 can be calculated as a certain percentage. And the gap in 2019 between these same groups of students is smaller. But that's not because both groups of students are improving and becoming proficient readers. It's because white student scores are in decline and black students' scores have, have barely moved. And so something is going on, something is not working, no matter how much money we throw at the problem, because there has been so much research to show over the years that how you spend money matters far more than how much you spend. And there are several other states that are outperforming Minnesota and serving their students of color better. I 
think of Mississippi. You mentioned Mississippi. Mississippi Black and Hispanic students outperform Minnesota Black and Hispanic students in both math and reading. And Mississippi serves a larger student body of Black students than Minnesota. So we obviously have some things to figure out with our education system. And uh, just more money is clearly not the solution. Well, I think uh, some of it, without me even doing any research, based on what I know, uh, when you start defocusing reading, math, uh, history, civics, and you start focusing more on social justice and history and and how and white privilege and how racism and stuff, of course you're going to turn out students of all races and backgrounds and demographic who know less about that. Now, they'll be able to uh, tell you about uh, social justice and things like that, but they won't be able to read. So uh, you mentioned chapters, original chapter in Washington, D.C. during the Obama era. Uh, you mentioned Madison, Wisconsin with the latest chapter. These are not known as hotbeds of conservatism. The, in fact, they are just the opposite. Uh, it takes a little guts to do what you're doing, I guess. Uh, and for some reason, the, the scripture come to the mind, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall feel no evil. But uh, how, what kind of reception did you receive originally in Washington, D.C., uh, which we know is basically a liberal town. So uh, how, how did that work out? And did you have to uh, go out and keep an eye on your car win windows and things while you were going around? How did that work out, Dean? Well, one of the things that we do when we go in is we don't first talk uh, politics. We talk values. And so we talk about strengthening the black family. We talk about economic opportunity. We talk about criminal justice reform. We talk about educational choice. And when you talk those things, most in the African-American community are wide open to listen to what you have to say, because we believe in economic opportunity. We just believe from our vantage point that the free market system is better equipped to provide that. And we can show the data. We can show the examples of Frederick Douglass, who during his time period had uh, people that were involved in the socialist uh, movement who he soundly rejected. Uh, so we know what prosperity looks like. We know that the black family, even though it has been decimated in the last few decades by bad public policy, we know the resilience of the black family. In fact, we just uh, this week are releasing a report on the black family. And we would love for those who are listening uh, in your audience to visit us at dlinstitute.org. Uh, if they sign up for our email updates, they'll get a free copy of that report, which is uh, on the strength of the black family. So these are the things that we go into. We've done hundreds of programs around the country that specifically gauge on issues. And as we talk about the issues, then we show good public policy and where those policies tend to fit, whether they're center right or center left. And uh, I'm happy to say though, there are opportunities where we have uh, identified with uh, some black Americans who are Democrats, who, uh, I would say are more common sense Democrats uh, who have voted, uh, but most of those people end up getting pushed out by their party, uh, you know, when they start rising up. And so 
we we felt the need to engage with these folks in these different cities talk about these values and policy and then let them know hey if you feel that these areas are your areas and you you need to feel comfortable you know as an independent or as a republican and so we've had really good success some people say well man i'm not quite ready to be a republican but i am certainly ready to join the frederick douglas foundation okay that's great uh i tell everyone myself d my mom and the people that raised me they were conservative oh, and, no question uh, about yeah and, and i pre the older i get the more i appreciate that uh so uh one of the things i read uh i think on the website of the frederick douglas foundation and you just hinted on it uh that you believe in the sanctity of free market limited government to bear on the hardest problems facing our nation uh expound on that just briefly dean because i know you have some another engagement but the uh positive effect uh that free enterprise and limited government really have on uh a lot of the issues uh, facing our communities and i agree with you by the way so yeah on that yeah there there are a number of areas that we could look at but because this is the 100th anniversary of the tulsa race riots i will i'd like to draw our attention you know you had communities black communities over 100 you know 100 years ago and more um whether it was uh Rosewood in Florida, whether it was Sweet Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, whether it was Tulsa, we had communities that were intact with the intact families and they were prospering. What people don't realize is why was it that white, angry white racists went into these towns and burned them? It was because there was so much prosperity, they were jealous, they were angry at seeing how much prosperity there was in a black wall street and in some of these other areas. And so I think that we need to look a little bit to the past to say, how did they have so much success? How did they have wealth? Why was it that my grandfather uh, acquired 70 acres of land in Virginia? You know, what was it about them that made them successful? See, I think that it's better for us to examine success than to, wring our hands over failure. And I believe that these are the kind of things that we need to do. Then some of the hardest hitting uh, problems within our community, I could talk about the educational crisis where in certain zip codes, you, uh, you have uh, underperforming schools that have left black families, uh, you know, lagging behind. But I could talk about the black family and I could talk about Planned Parenthood. Uh, they celebrated a few years ago their 100th anniversary. So for 100 years, they've been propagating a eugenics ideology that has flipped uh, the conditions in the black community from being some of the strongest faith and family communities now to where 72% uh, of uh, children are born out of wedlock, 80% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are found in black communities where black women today uh, are more likely uh, to get abortions than their white or Hispanic counterparts. You know, a third of abortions, really more than a third of abortions are performed on black women. So these are some of the hardest hitting areas. And what we're trying to do is to provide solutions to those areas that are not just another government program. 
Well, yeah, and let's uh, talk briefly here on the issue of abortion. Now, I've heard uh, a number of figures as far as how many uh, black babies have been aborted since uh, Roe v. Wade, anywhere from 20 to 60 million. What number uh, do you use or do you feel comfortable uh, using when you're talking about the number of black babies that's been aborted over the past decades? Yeah, sure. You're really talking about closer to that 20 million number for black children specifically. Um, there's roughly about a million abortions that take place now uh, every year. And about a third of those, a uh, little bit more um, maybe, are performed on African-American women. And so you, uh, if you go back to, you know, since Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, prior to Roe v. Wade in some communities, um, you know, and you maybe know this, Lacey, growing up, you know, it used to be thought of that abortion was just something that white people did. It wasn't something that we did. And part of that, because we see so many out of wedlock births. But the reality is, is in many of these areas, um, abortion is, uh, you know, largely in some of these urban areas is, a, is an ethnic problem. Uh, but and I think it's important to note, though, that it hasn't always been that way. And there's a reason for it. You know, in 1939, Margaret Sanger wrote a letter to uh, Clarence Gamble of the Procter and Gamble fortune stating, we don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. She would engage with ministers to help her diabolical plot of trying to reduce the black population. And so Today, her vision has been fulfilled largely because 80% of those surgical abortion facilities, as I mentioned, are found in black and Latino neighborhoods. So, Dean, you mentioned a few things here that uh, like 72% uh, of uh, black Americans identify as being conservative and with conservative principles. We talked about the abortion issue and the horrendous impact it's having on the black community. Uh, how do you explain the fact that we basically are conservative? And and like you say, I remember the time when you would never even think of aborting a baby. And we've transitioned into that type of culture. How do you explain this, Dean? How, how do we get here? And then, uh, just as importantly, how do we get out of here? So, <laughs> Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, thoughts in terms of how how we got there and what the, the issue is. There is a, um, a doctor by the name of Tasha Philpott, uh, University of Texas and Austin, who has written uh, quite a bit about this. Um, it's uh, I think it's uh, one of the things she wrote is conservative, uh, but not Republican. And really political parties kind of, you know, over a period of time shift, you know, some of their ideologies and their principles. And I think that um, during the Great Migration, when many blacks left uh, the South and went to the North and they were seeking, you know, in some of these industrialized areas, uh, employment, uh, you know, some of the things that happened in those areas is uh, labor unions. And as the labor unions began to uh, move into those areas and kind of bridge their allies with uh, with with the Democratic Party. I think that's one of the reasons that you did see a shift uh, in certain cities uh, with black Americans changing. And then FDR um, back in his day, um, not for his party, but because of a lot of the programs that he pushed uh, during, you know, after, you know, the Great Depression, um, 
first they were to whites and then he saw the opportunity to engage with blacks and so fdr was one of those early ones who uh pushed uh engagement with blacks and uh that 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 began to tip it and so between the time period of fdr and um uh, eisenhower you did see a shift of black americans shifting their allegiance from the republican party to the democratic party uh, but of course at that time uh, Democrats were not um, pro-LGBTQ. Uh, uh, during that time period, Democrats were not uh, pro-abortion. Uh, early on, you even had people like Ted Kennedy who, um, you know, promoted his, uh, you know, pro-life uh, positions, you know, back in the 70s. And so, but as modern, you know, politics has moved, there's been this real cultural shift and the Republican Party has kind of, been a champion of social and moral causes in the last, you know, several decades. And I think that that's where there's been this big shift. Let's talk about, and we talked about two parent homes and things like that. Why don't you uh, tell me about what you think about the importance of fathers in the lives of their children and hopefully in the same home as the mother of their children. Give me a little take on uh, your take on that particular yeah. Item. Yeah, I, I I can't tell you how not, not important this is. I think everyone intuitively we, we just know it's important, but it, it is really you know the the most cynical thing I, I believe about critical race theory is that they use they use the racial disparities to justify their their whole you know movement. Mm -hmm. And what's really you know, again cynical about this, Lacey, is that the, the disparities are not racial. They look racial, but they're not. Yeah, they're they're family structure disparities. And the only reason why it looks like racial disparities is because the black community is 50 years ahead of where every other culture is and, and unwed birth. So, so here's the critical piece that we have to let people know about. For the first time in American history, we have 50% of all births in the United States. 50% of them are to unwed moms under the age of 30. So it all started in the black community in the 60s. At that time, we were 80% two-parent families, approximately 80% two-parent families, but something changed, something changed cultural behaviors. And it was the introduction of a program in the LBJ administration. And we went from 80% two-parent families to 80% fatherless homes in my lifetime. What made that change? For the first time in American history, we incentivize women to have children, but remain unmarried. Right. That was a federal program that was never introduced before until 1964, early 60s. And it was promoted in the black community heavily. And it literally changed the dynamic of the black family. The black family used to be faith, family and education oriented. It was a God centered culture. And it changed starting in the 60s when we when we incentivize women and children as long as they remain unmarried. And, you know, today, literally today, I have the data here for the state of Minnesota mm -hmm. in North Minneapolis and some parts of these communities, nearly 90 percent of these kids will grow up without a father in their home ever in their home. 
you mentioned something there that we got into earlier, and uh, we talked about a clinical, famous clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson. One of the things that I like about what he says is that sometimes you just can't look at one factor. You got to look across the board. There's a lot of determinants, and a lot of times on a lot of these issues, he mentioned 1920 determinants that you have to look at. And what I have been saying to people lately, we do have to look at all the different factors that's going on here, not just stop with that one issue of race. And then I, I've been talking to a lot of uh, black men lately about the breakdown of the family. And one of the things I'm saying to them, and you have to be careful of using yourself to extrapolate uh, to other people, is that, and I'm just being honest, I cannot imagine a government program or anybody doing anything that would make me not stay with my wife and raise my children. And that was just me personally, but based on my experience just growing up. And I think that's the way we have to make that commitment. And I just grew up with a commitment that uh, I was going to stay with the mothers of my children. I was going to marry her. I'm going to raise my children. I don't want no one else raising my children. I'm not going to depend on no one else to support my family because once again, that's the way we were raised. And so I think we, we got to challenge here, Kendall, and you and I probably in this generation, we got to start the process of reverse engineering, I guess, some of these bad issues. So I really appreciate the effort you're doing there. Uh, what do you see as what was as the most challenge for you, the most challenging thing for you as a father? Uh, 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 maybe I should say the less a fun thing, either way you want to put it. What's what what what's you see as a challenge of fatherhood? Well, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed I really enjoyed my 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 time in, in fatherhood. Now the kids may not believe they you know they, they may not have had fun in <laughs> the teenage years, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's funny. You know what? I, I I have a a better relationship with my adult sons than I have with my teenage sons. It was great when they're little; they like the fun and joke around and wrestle with dad, but you know, when it came time to come to early, early manhood or teenage years, I told him, look, what I'm doing for you, I'm doing for the 25 year old you, not the 15 year old you. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you appreciate it later, but it, it, it was really, my job was to prepare them to be young men, not to be their buddies. Right. right. I'm not your, I'm not your friend. I'm not your buddy. Uh, and I, you'll I, appreciate I, it later. I love that. Uh, tell me as a father, and I kind of know the answers you're going to give. But as a father, what are the things that you are most proud of? Uh, well, no, let's let's broaden that a little bit. As a father and a husband, what are the few things that you're most proud of? Well, there's a couple of things. And, and you know what? I, um, I'm so fortunate that I came to the faith. So I came to the Christian faith when I was 27 years old. And I, and I give that as the catalyst, the main reason why uh, I've been married for 35 years. My wife and I celebrated 30, 35 years last weekend. And, um, and that our kids have the faith in their life. It's neat to see they're, we're in three different states. They, they text, they communicate with each other. Um, they call or they call or they communicate with their mom nearly every day. And, um, and to have them rooted in the in in the Christian faith, because regardless, I mean, we are all human. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have disappointments in life. But if we, as long as you're grounded in a faith, 
you hit, there's a sense of hope, there's a sense of, sense of place to go that grounds you. And without it, I, you know, I never wanted them to be rooted in the culture because the culture drifts, and, you know, back and forth in different norms. It's whatever Time Magazine or CNN says is norm. That, that, that's not a way to live. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, you mentioned earlier about you being prepared for the world. And when I left high school, I tell people, I felt like I was prepared for anything the world had to offer. And when I look back on it, it has to do with me being brought up in church and my faith. And I know it's uh, a lot of people try to make fun of that nowadays and they don't respect it, but it was the most, it's the foundation of just about everything I've done. And, and look, this is not to imply that I've been an angel and, and a good guy and I haven't made mistakes in life, but I tell everybody what happens is that it help, it gives you a lighthouse yes. on the sea of life where right. you can always find your new direction. So I really appreciate it. In fact, that's a verse in the Bible that says, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And right. that's what prepared me for everything that was out there. Mm -hmm.